0: Thank you Pastor Mike. I love the opportunity. I love who we are as a church. I love moments that we share just at the altar, pouring it out and leaving it with the Lord. I love that so so much. What a week we've got coming up, right? We we celebrate our nation's independence the 4th of July in this week, which is awesome. I think it's a special treat as God would have it that as we come to the text uh, as we make our way through Luke this week, what 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 we find is this moment where Jesus is walking through the trial that's going to lead up to his execution. He, he is about to accomplish the greatest act of delivering independence that has ever taken place. And the way he's going to do it is by giving up, surrendering his own freedom so that we could know ultimate freedom. And we get to look at that in Scripture on the week that we celebrate our country's independence and the freedoms that we enjoy as well. This is one of those passages, I will be honest with you, it is so powerful. It is so rich. There are just passages where, man, I am, not, I am not up to the task. There's more here in this text than I can possibly express. And so we're just asking, Lord, in the time that we share, would you do that thing that you do via your Holy Spirit? Where what you do in our hearts surpasses the words that are spoken. Would you, uh, would you speak to our minds and to our hearts and to our spirits a clear word this morning through, your, through the scripture in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Life comes down sometimes to just a few defining moments. You know what I mean? Those moments that they just, they make a difference and they stick with you and they have a deep and abiding impact. When I was in college... And that was a while back, but when I was in college, intramural sports at my school was a huge thing. It was the only thing. Sports was our lives, and intramurals was the place that that was played out, and nowhere more so than uh, in the basketball league. And so in my senior year, the team that I was a part of made it into the playoffs and we made it through the tournament. We were in the semifinal game. The winner of this one goes on to the championship game, which was a big deal. And it was one of those games that was back and forth and we were down for a while and we were coming back. And in the crucial moment, in the last second of the game, as we're making our comeback, I made a basket that tied the score with one second left. Thank you. Not necessary, but thank you. I do appreciate that. It's been like 30 years since they clapped over that, but thank you. I didn't realize how thirsty I was. (laughs) Better than just making the basket, I got fouled on the play. And so now I've got a chance at the free throw line to win the game, right? And so I come out, and we're getting ready, and the ref's just about to hand me the ball. And the other team called a timeout. Just to ice with me, just to ice me, just to mess with my head just to get me thinking about things and trying to perform poorly and that got me mad it got me really mad for two reasons one i was mad that they thought that that kind of childishness would affect me and my performance secondly i had a date scheduled just after the game and if we had to go into overtime that was going to be a problem so i was mad on that count as well and so to show them that i wasn't going to put up with their shenanigans all you know they called the timeout both teams go back to their benches but not me I just stood there at the free throw line and I waited as if to show them you can't mess with me like that. Then the ref blew the whistle and the teams came back out. They handed me the ball. Two dribbles. A breath. Another dribble. Set the feet. Time slows down. There's just... The basketball, arcing upward with a beautiful, slow, <laughs> controlled backspin. It slows, it reaches its zenith, <laughs> and it begins to descend. Just leave that there for a moment. <laughs> and here are the two things that are going through my mind first regardless of what happens next this is going in one of two very different directions either I'm the hero who wins the game and gets to go as a winner on this date that is so important to me or I am the arrogant cocky, proud guy who thought so much of himself that he ruined the whole thing and missed the shot. It was a defining moment. It was one way or the other. Here's the other thought going through my mind at that moment. Nobody told me today was going to be a defining moment. If if someone had said, it's going to come down to this today, Scott. This is your defining moment. I would have spent all day at the free throw line preparing and practicing and being ready so when that unannounced defining moment came along, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was absolutely and particularly ready. Defining moments don't always announce themselves. But in our passage today, we see a series of people encountering some defining moments. And we see uh, Jesus as an example of one who excels in his defining moment. And then we get kind of a list of some other folks who didn't do so well. And we're gonna see what it is that we can learn from them, okay? So um, we're actually gonna begin back at the end of Luke chapter 22. And this is that moment where, um, where they're bringing the accusations, the religious leaders are bringing the accusations against Jesus. And this, this is what... Uh, this is how that goes at daybreak the council of the elders of the people that's all the religious leaders and both the chief priests and the teachers of the law they met together and Jesus was led before them if you are the Messiah they said tell us now this is kind of disingenuous because he's already told them on a number of occasions that he was but they go ahead and ask it again and Jesus answered hey if I tell you you will not believe me and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, this is his moment. This is his defining moment. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They weren't quite satisfied yet, so they, so they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. Now, in our culture, that sounds a little bit passive. Like, well, maybe you think you are, but maybe not. But in, in the culture of the day, that's a yes It's an unmistakable yes. In fact, it's so much of a yes that they then say, well, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard this from his own lips. We understand him to be saying that he is the one and only unique son of God. And and they say, that's it. We have everything we need on him at that point. Why is this such an important moment? Because Jesus in this moment when he says, yes, I I am the son of God in direct response to their very specific request. Why is this so important? Because there's only a few things that could possibly be true at this point. C.S. Lewis, the 20th century scholar and theologian and philosopher, put it real nicely when he talked about, there are really only three things that can be true. Jesus has declared himself to be the son of God. Now, if he's not, there are two options. Either he's not the son of God, but he thinks that he is. Kind of like someone who thinks that they're Napoleon or thinks that they're, some, they're just kind of deluded about who they are. That's one possibility if Jesus is not being accurate. Or he's not the son of God and he knows it. And he's lying to them, and he's trying to create a movement and gain power and manipulate and gain power over people that isn't rightly his, and he's trying to do it by lying. If he's not being if he's not accurate when he says I'm the son of God, he's either a crazy person or an evil person. And then the only other option is that what Jesus said was true, that he really is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh. Those remained the options. You know what is not on the table as an option? It's the thing we hear people say all the time. Jesus was a decent guy. He lived a decent life. He had some good things to say. He taught some good principles, and we should all kind of be more like him. He was pretty much just a good, moral, spiritual teacher like everybody else. Listen, if he was not the son of God like he said he was, that's the last thing he was. If he was not the son of God, you're going to have to choose. Do you think that he's a crazy person or do you think that he's an evil, manipulative uh, liar? In his moment, in his decisive moment, in his defining moment, Jesus takes out of our hands kind of the comfortable rejection. Oh, well, he's a good guy, but I don't need to pay that much attention to him. No, he's either the son of God or he's something despicable or he's something tragic. And those are the choices that lie before us when we consider him. Jesus answered his moment, his defining moment, with a, response, with a statement that requires a response from us. And many of us who are gathered in this room are one who have said, you know, given all the alternatives, we believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he said that, that he really is the Son of God, that he really is the Messiah. Maybe you're someone in this room who hasn't come to that conclusion yet. Maybe you're just exploring or beginning a a process of learning and evaluating. And I want to say to you that as you engage in that, I think God is honored by a process of honest investigation. And I think the more that you look, you'll come to these are the options in front of you. The account here transitions then from Jesus, who did a great job in his defining moment, to some others uh, who did not so much. Now, It's a long passage, and it's kind of challenging, and there's a lot of back and forth and different things like that. There's a lot of verses here that we're going to move through, okay? And and I understand that there's a lot. And just know in advance that if you email me this week and say, Pastor Scott, I think that was maybe too many verses. I will receive that as the greatest compliment in my life, that there was too much Bible in my message. I will be all right with that. So, Here is a defining moment that those religious leaders come into. Let's let's take a look at the text in. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. And he claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he came all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. So, here we have the religious leaders, the Israelite, the Jews, the religious leaders taking their prisoner, Jesus. And where do they take him? They take him to the local Roman ruler, Pontius. This we've got a we've got uh, an issue here within our own realm, within our own people, within our own kind of spiritual system, but. They take him to the ruler from Rome to try and accomplish their agenda. And the accusations they make, interestingly enough, are so completely false. He's been been subverting the nation. No, he hasn't. He's been bringing God's glory to the nation, he's been healing the sick. He's been caring for those who are on the margins. He's been bringing hope and the presence of God into their lives. That's hardly subverting the nation. They accuse him. He's telling the people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this would catch Pilate's attention, right? This, This is something that he would sink his teeth into if it were true. Except they'd already come to Jesus. They tried to trap him on this one, right? And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar's? And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And they turned that phrase around and turned it into a false accusation that was absolutely untrue. They said, he claims to be a Messiah, a king. He wants to be, he's a political ruler who's trying to take your place, Pilate. Jesus said, this is not my kind of kingdom. My, My kingdom's in heaven. My kingdom's a spiritual kingdom. The religious leaders had an agenda. And their agenda was this. They wanted Jesus out of the way. They didn't want to be troubled by him anymore. They didn't want him to get any more of the attention that used to go to them. They didn't want him to have any more influence. They just wanted him gone. And in their defining moment, they failed because their agenda was everything to them. And they were willing to make false accusations. They were willing to lie directly about things that were indisputably false. And they set their character and they set their integrity aside in favor of their agenda in this defining moment of theirs. They could have told the truth, but they didn't. But they didn't. And so Pilate, when he hears this, he's kind of unconvinced, right? He says, "I don't. I don't. There's nothing here. There's nothing to prosecute here." And then he hears word that he may be a Galilean. Galilee is this area in Israel that's up to the north. And technically, it's outside of his jurisdiction, which means he can send the problem to the people who are in charge of Galilee. King Herod was the the Jewish ruler who was kind of in charge of the Galilean region. And it happened that he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so what what does Pilate do? He punts. He says, I can get out of making a decision here today. Pilate's going to get to his defining moment as well, and we'll see how he feels also. But for now, he puts his decision off, and that's what allows King Herod to come and have his defining moment as well. This is the same King Herod that earlier in the gospel he had John the Baptist put to death, beheaded, right? A brutal, evil, terrible ruler and, and Jesus is being now sent across Jerusalem to him so that uh, uh, Pilate can get out from under the burden of this decision and send him to Herod. So here's how, here's how this goes. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. I don't know if that's what I was gonna expect. Herod's this evil kind of uh, killer of those who have spiritual authority. He put John the Baptist to death and, 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 and all this. But Jesus, he sees Jesus and he's greatly pleased because... For a long time, he had wanted, he had been wanting to see him, and from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him, uh, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort, and he plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law they were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers they ridiculed and they mocked him, they dressed him in an elegant robe. And they send him back to Pilate, kind of their own private joke. He claims to be king. Okay, great. We'll put kingly robes on him. We'll see how funny that is. And that day, Herod and Pilate become friends over that private joke, and before this, they had been enemies. I'm fascinated by the fact that Herod is interested. Jesus comes and says, "I'm very interested, but why? Oh, he, I want to see him do a miracle." Now that you're here, perform for me. Do that water into wine thing I hear you're so famous for. That would be awesome. He wanted to be kind of dazzled by who this Jesus was and what he might say. He was a personality, and he says, there's something happening here, and I want to be a part of it. Like, in my mind, I imagine Herod, like, Jesus is this kind of celebrity personality, and things are going on, and if, and if it were happening today, Herod would have grabbed Jesus and put his arm around him and grabbed his phone and taken a selfie. Captured the moment, live streamed the whole conversation, put it out on TikTok, and and try to drum up his role in the middle of it all. Because what Herod wanted was just an experience. He wanted to be in and a part of it. He wanted to be entertained at this moment. And when Jesus ceased to be entertaining to him, he was done. Once he discovered that Jesus was saying nothing and doing nothing and wasn't living up to his own uh, self-directed expectations of Jesus, he stopped being entertained and he had had enough. He wanted nothing to do with him. Herod failed in his defining moment because he didn't find Jesus entertaining enough. He couldn't get Jesus to do what he wanted Jesus to do. And so, instead of making any kind of commitment to this person of Jesus, instead of coming down on a side one way or the other, he just tried to turn Jesus into a joke, and he returned him back to Pilate. And when he does that, Pilate gets that defining moment that he was trying to avoid. Now it's Pilate's turn. Let's see what happens here. Pilate... He then calls together the chief priests. Now, Jesus, just to understand, Jesus started out being accused and tried by the religious leaders of Israel. And then they took him to the uh, civil magistrate from Rome who then sent him to the political leader of Israel, Herod. And then he got looped back over to the leader from Rome. It's like a court case going through the different sorts of appeals and up and down and all over, just back and forth and back and forth and a lot of chaos. So uh, Pilate calls together the chief priests, the rulers, the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. What you represented to me was this guy was stirring up trouble. I've examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. And neither is Herod, by the way, for he sent him back, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. And up to there, you're thinking, okay, he's seeing things clearly. He's doing all right. Therefore, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll just punish him, and then I'll release him. I'll just punish him, and then I'll release him. This is the second time that Pilate has said, I don't find any fault in him. This is the second time that Pilate has said, he does not deserve any of this. This is the second time that he's attempted to quiet the crowd and just punish Jesus a little bit and send him on his way. And this is the second time that the crowd wants none of it. And there will be a third time. But Pilate here has a problem. And his problem is this as as the Roman representative ruler there in Jerusalem, he has two jobs. He just has two things he has to do. He has to keep collecting the taxes and he has to keep the peace. If he does those two things, he'll do great. And if he fails to do either of those things, life is going to get very, very uncomfortable for him. As a Roman, as a Roman magistrate getting posted to Jerusalem, that was not the top of the food chain. It was kind of a remote out. It was kind of a starting point from which you hoped to graduate and increase and get promoted and get sent to uh, get to the, to the areas where that really mattered, that were really significant that way. And Pilate knew that if I allow some kind of an uproar to take place here in in the area that I'm overseeing, even though it's a small forgotten outpost in the Roman Empire, it, if I blow this assignment, my career's done. I'll, I'll never climb the ladder. I'll, I'll be stuck in the backwoods forever. And so his conviction that there's nothing wrong with this guy, his conviction that Jesus is an innocent man is in tension kind of with his own sense of professional and career comfort. If I don't give the people what they want, They seem to be pretty agitated. This could turn into a big uprising, and that uprising is the end of my career. And in this moment, Pilate failed his defining moment because as he waited all out, his comfort was more important to him than his conviction that Jesus was innocent. And then there's the crowd. And when I say the crowd, it's easy to think of a a, a hostile, angry, yelling, screaming bunch of them. But these were people who came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, to worship their God. To take part in the kind of prescribed activities that go around kind of the holiest celebration in Israel's year. These were, these were not just the crazies. These were you and me caught up in a moment. Here's, here's how Luke describes it. He says, but the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, away with Jesus, and said, release Barabbas to us. And Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. He was a bad guy. He had caused trouble. He deserved to die. And the crowds are saying, no, if you're gonna let somebody go, let Barabbas go. We need Jesus put away. But wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. This is the third time. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness. And he rose up each time by declaring his faith on God and standing on his word. Three times Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And now three times, here we see him, Pilate, um, trying to, to quiet the crowd. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I, again, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant their demand. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, the one that they asked for. And he surrendered Jesus to their will. These are God's people. These are the people who defined themselves in terms of their covenant identity as God's people. These were people who were committed to the promise of a Messiah who'd ultimately come and redeem them, but these people got caught up in a moment that they did not understand. So much energy, so much um, intensity. There was a lot on the line, and they fail in their defining moment by getting so caught up in the events of the day that they forgot who they were in God, and they forgot about all of his promises. To them. That's a lot of defining moments, and it's a lot of failure in those defining moments, right? And it's easy to stand back and go, yeah, they blew it, yeah, they blew it, yeah, they blew it, yeah, they blew it. It's a little harder and a little more challenging, and yet all the more important to ask the question what do we do with this? What does this speak to us? And and how do we apply what happened here into any meaningful way in our life? What can we learn about our defining moments? The religious leaders, they sacrificed their character on the altar of their agenda. Surely we would never. I've got an agenda. I'd like to to succeed in my career, and all I really need, I need this deal to go through. But the numbers don't quite match. But if I fudge the numbers just a little, if I sacrifice just a tiny little sliver of my character... Maybe that deal will go through. And maybe I can have both. Man, I know from a character standpoint, I'm supposed to tell the truth. But if I tell the truth about what happened, everything's gonna change. If I own up to the truth, about what I did when I was there when I thought nobody was looking. If I tell the truth about that it's going to have an impact on on how, the comfort and the way that I want to live my life. I just want to suggest that sometimes these moments come where we're called to make a choice between what's right and what's good and what's true and what represents the character of Christ and on the other hand what might better suit the agenda that would be more comfortable for us, right? Those defining moments, they don't announce themselves in advance. We just find themselves in the middle of them. And we need to have our eyes open so that when those moments come, we're ready to succeed. We're ready to say, this might be the hardest thing I ever do, but I'm going to tell the truth and do the right thing. And if that causes difficulty, so be it, because I can stand as one who said, I'm living an upright life of truthful character and moral integrity before my God, and that's more important to me than anything else. Pilate, in his defining moment, he sacrificed his conviction on the altar of his comfort, right? And again, he's not the only one. Those moments come for us as well, right? Have you ever had the sense of conviction? That man, I I crossed a line back there I said things I shouldn't have said. I did things I shouldn't have done. And I've got this conviction. I've just got to go make that right. I've got to apologize. I've got to confess. I have to go to that miserable person that's in my life and I have to humble myself before them and, oh, agony of agonies, ask them to forgive me. Man, that's uncomfortable. It's a defining moment where we choose between whether we're going to live out our convictions of how Christ calls us to live or we're going to just keep paddling along in pursuit of maintaining whatever level of comfort that's there. And here I'll meddle just a bit. There may be something that's been playing around in your mind this week, something you know God is calling you to do, something you know God is calling you to take care of. Maybe you know God is calling you to stop doing something you're doing, or maybe you know that God is calling you to start doing something that you know you should have been doing all along. Whatever that may be, but that thing that you've been putting off and going, ah, I'm not, I can't do that yet, it's gonna be too hard, it's gonna, it's gonna be too difficult, I don't know if I'm strong enough, it's just gonna be hard and I can't and I won't. Can I just say, this is a defining moment for you. And it's time to choose conviction over comfort. Because defining moments go in one way or they go in another. Herod sacrificed any, making any commitment on the altar of his own selfish desire. Herod wanted what he wanted and he wanted Jesus to provide it for him. I'd like my miracle please. Teach me something fascinating, please. Jesus, here's what I want out of you. And if you provide that, we're great. But the minute you stop meeting that need that I say I have, the minute that you stop being entertaining to me, the moment that you stop doing exactly what it is that I think that you ought to do, well, then I'm done. Jesus, I'm not going to make any commitment to you until you demonstrate your commitment to me. I just want to suggest that like dying on the cross is a pretty big statement of commitment. He's done that already. It breaks my heart to see those who appeared to be following Jesus turn from him and discover that really all they were following was the pursuit of their own wishes and their own goals and their own dreams. And when somehow Jesus didn't live up to their expectations and their requirements, they were done following him and they were going to follow the fulfillment of those dreams and wishes somewhere else. It's heartbreaking. Those defining moments, those defining decisions, again, they don't get announced ahead of time. There's not a headline in the sky saying, this is the big one. If you get this one wrong, you're going to start a chain reaction that goes really bad places. It's just another decision in another moment in another day in another week. But it becomes a defining moment. The crowd. They sacrifice their covenant identity. On the altar of a current event. Jerusalem is, is awash in the buzz about what's going on. And people are being assembled in the middle of the night. And the first thing in the morning. And it's bedlam. And it's chaos. And the crowds are there. And people are just getting caught up. And carried away. And forgetting about their covenant identity. Man, do we live at a time in the life of our nation where this passage is really relevant. It's not just an election cycle, although I think the phrase election cycle is really weird anymore because they don't really stop. It's just constant, right? But we live in a time that is so politically charged and there's so much animosity and intensity and hostility and all of that going on and, and it's just crazy making and, and accusations back and forth in all directions and it's really, really easy for us to forget about our identity based on our new covenantal relationship with God and Jesus Christ. To forget that that's who we are and to just get caught up in the fray and with the intensity and the hubbub and the current event and the notion of how things are with all my intensity about how I think things ought to be and how I think people ought to do things and how I think others ought to vote and why I think some shouldn't be allowed to vote and I get all fired up and I become defined by these pent up aggressions that are fueled by the state of the country, right? And I find myself in the crowd having lost sight of my identity as someone who is defined by my covenantal belonging to God. Because if I understood that, I'm not just going to run with the crowd. I'm not just going to join with the largest noise. I'm going to reflect in the way that I conduct myself just a sense of God's love and God's care and God's grace. And so some of us, and I'm us some of us need to be really careful to keep our covenant identity as God's people at the front of our activity and subject everything else to that in the midst of the fray so what do we do with all of this what do we do with all this well here are a few, a few action points that we can take one there's the que- answer the question who is Jesus for you if maybe you have, over the course of your life, you've you've wondered, you would never come to a conclusion. Maybe you've harbored that idea that Jesus was just a pretty good guy who got into some trouble. I don't know. But one of the most, like, don't put off that decision. There's a defining moment that comes down to saying, if Jesus is who he says he is, i got to step across that line of faith and say yes and to follow him with all of my whole heart and with all of my whole life. And if you've not had the chance to do that... That's something you need to do. When the service is over, we'll have folks up here who would love to talk with you and walk with you through what that looks like and how that takes place. Secondly, find yourself in the story. Who do you identify with mostly? Whose moment, whose defining moment kind of parallels something about where you are in your life right now? Maybe it's Pilate, maybe it's Herod, maybe it's the crowd, maybe it's the leaders. I don't know, but find that and learn the lesson. Recognize that this is your moment. How are you going to respond? Are you going to sacrifice the the content of who God wants you to be on the altar of some convenience or comfort? I hope not. But recognize that every decision we make has that potential to be that defining moment that way. Finally, confess and repent. as, As you evaluate your life and your station and where you are, and you and I, and we look and we go... Oh, in the same ways that those folks blew it, in the same way that they missed their defining moment, in the same ways that they just chose a bad decision when a good decision was in front of them, in addition to recognizing that they did that, there's something about saying, God, that's me. And I've been doing that. And I'm unwilling to pretend that I haven't. So God, I come to you and I acknowledge in my heart, I've done that, I've failed. But the very Death that they were leading Jesus towards is a death that brought redemption even to our failures, right? So that when we say, yes, I failed and God, please forgive me, he does. And then he places his spirit within us and empowers us to move forward in a way that's better, in a way that's purer, in a way that's stronger, in a way that pleases him, in a way that we never could in our own strength. But that begins with confessing and repenting and being very honest with God about that. We're going to, um, in just a moment, uh, we'll have some music, and there's a chance to kind of lean into that, saying yes to Jesus, and lean into a moment of confession and repentance and honesty with the Lord by receiving the elements of communion. Uh, they are in the seat back in front of you. There's a little cup. It's got a wafer in the bottom, and it's got some juice in that. And those are simply reminders. They're symbols of our faith. They they help us remember that Jesus' body was broken, and that His blood was shed, so that there is. Uh, forgiveness of our sins and access into that covenant relationship with God that makes us who we are. And so, while the band is playing, take that moment. Have a moment with the Lord. And when the time is right, go ahead in a very meaningful way. Receive the bread and, and take the cup and let that symbolize your reception of the good news news of the gospel and of the message of Christ. Heavenly Father, in this moment, in this precious holy moment, we come to you with our, our failings, our brokenness, those missed moments, We lay him on the altar. We ask for your forgiveness. We accept the gift of your grace and love. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Mission Vail Christian Church. Just know that we always have live services here every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. We'd love to have you here and we'll see you next time.